We're going to pick up in verse 12. Last week we studied the first 11 verses. Today we grab it in verse 12. And one of the things as you turn that I love about this section is how Paul begins. And that's with these words. He starts with these words. My dear friends. You know, Paul writes a lot of letters in the New Testament to a lot of different churches. But he has this affection. He has this affinity for the Philippians. He has this love for this particular church that is truly unmatched. And I love it. And I love how Paul feels about these people because it's honestly how I feel about us, about Cedar Mill. I was with a guy this week, um, a man who was considering making Cedar Mill his church, and he was just asking me some questions, and at one point he just said, what do you love about this church? And it, the question took me off, you know, off guard a little bit. I was like, um, uh, you know, it's a lot of things, so I was trying to kind of process my way through it, but in the end, where I landed, and this is what I truly believe is, what I love about this church is this church is my family. Um, this is not just the place where I work, this is not just where I pastor, um, you are my people, and my family considers you my family. And so um, that's just a real, real blessing. You are a family, and here's what's great about family. You can love your family and complain about them, and it's totally okay. So that's what's great about being a family is we can love each other and also annoy each other sometimes because that's what families do. No, um, really just love you a lot. And that's how F Paul feels about these people he's writing to. He writes from this place of, of love and longing for them to have and experience everything that God wants them to have in Christ. And he's going to tackle um, some more of that this morning. Here's what he says. Therefore, my dear friends, my beloved, my agapetos, right? As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. Verse 12 starts with the word therefore because Paul is springboarding off of this last section, this famous uh, early Christian hymn that he's quoted in the first part of this chapter, and it's a hymn about Jesus, about the humility of Jesus, about the humility of Jesus that enabled him to be obedient to the Father, and not just kind of obedient. Jesus was radically obedient, obedient even unto death, even unto death in the most torturous shameful and unimaginable way, even death on a cross. And therefore, Paul says, because of the radical obedience of Jesus, Philippians, Cedar Mill, now you should model your life after him and live in radical, humble obedience as well. He says, we are called to live in light of the cross. The theological word for that is cruciformity. It's the idea that the death and resurrection of Jesus weren't just something that happened for us, but it's also a model for us, that we pattern our lives after the cross. And so Paul says, on the cross, Jesus was obedient, so we should continue to be obedient. And here is what obedience looks like. Here's how Paul defines radical, humble obedience. He says, continue to work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Now, to us, that's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? Work out your salvation. It's not how we generally talk about salvation. For us, we tend to think of salvation one-dimensionally. In sort of one 
rigid way, but the Bible actually presents a much thicker, richer, fuller, three-dimensional picture of salvation. The New Testament talks about salvation as past, present, and future. You see, the good news of salvation is not just that when we die, we can go to heaven, not hell. The New Testament talks about something so much more. First of all, the New Testament talks about salvation as something that happened in the past. Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved. In other words, if you have declared with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, which by the way is biblical language for with everything you are, with all that you are, your entire life, that God raised him from the dead, you have been saved. It happened. Ship it, book it, it's done. The theological word for this is justification. You have been justified or adoption you have been adopted as God's precious son or daughter and nothing can change that fact but the new testament also talks about salvation as present actually as present progressive as something that is happening and continues to happen first corinthians 1 says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved It's the power of God. The theological word is sanctification, the fact that God is saving you. He's in the process right now of saving you from the devastating impact of sin in your life. Salvation hasn't just happened, it's happening, and that's what Paul's talking about in our passage today. This continual process of salvation at work in us. And then finally, there's future salvation. Did you know that in the New Testament, The way salvation is most often talked about is in the future. In the Bible, salvation is most often on the horizon. In Romans 5, it says, you know, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? You see, the scriptures say there's coming a day when what God has done in the past and is doing in you will be final and complete, when you will be in glory, theologically, that means we call that glorification, when the struggle in your life, in your heart, between the spirit and the flesh will be no more and sin will no longer have any mastery over you, that is going to be a great day. You see, when we talk about salvation, one of the ways we talk about it often is Uh, with this phrase, eternal life. God wants to offer you eternal life. And that's a good thing, right? But when we think about eternal life, the image that comes to mind for most of us is just life that won't end, life that will go on and on forever, which is really good news if that life is good, right? Eternal crummy life, that's not good news. Eternal Bad life, that's really bad news, friends. Salvation is not just the promise of long life. It's the promise of new life. It's eternal in both length and quality. And what Paul says is the quality improvement of life is available now. It's available now. Work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. Lean into the new life that Jesus has already given you now. 
How, Paul is talking about how. How do we work out our salvation? What does it look like to be people who are leaning into and working out our salvation together? He says, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. A few weeks ago, Amy and I were in Vancouver, BC, and we did this hike called the Grouse Grind. It's this two and a half mile hike that's pretty much straight up the entire way. I think it was like a mile, like elevation gain in a two mile hike. It was crazy, it was nutty, it was not fun, it was not vacation, and um, we just pretty much endured it. But by the time we got to the top, we were so happy. You know that, that sense of relief when you finish something hard? So we're here on top of this mountain and there's this beautiful restaurant with an overlook and then you can ride a gondola down. I don't know why we didn't ride the gondola up, but we hiked up and then rode the gondola down. At this point, the gondola was really good news. But while we were up there, there was also this, this wildlife refuge where they have two grizzly bears who were orphaned as cubs and they've rescued them and they keep them there in this like 10 acre plot of land and you can walk over and you can see them and we've never seen grizzly bears up close and so we thought let's walk over and see these grizzly bears. I don't know if, like how good the view will be but, but we walked over, you know, it was like a, a quarter mile little hike and it was flat which we were happy about and we get there and we see these two bears. Now they're fully grown. Their names are Kula and Grinder. And they're super cute, right? The bears are just cute and they're laying there together, all cozied up together, kind of off a little bit back in the, in the shrubs and you can see them a little bit. It was really cool. But then they decide to get up and take a little stroll. And the fence they have up separating you and the bears is really just this like chintzy, just a little bit taller than me, but really, really thin wire fence. And so you're kind of like, How's this going to work, right? I found out later it's electric, which I was relieved to you know, hear. But these bears get up, and we're just kind of enjoying them from a distance. And all of a sudden, they get up to take a stroll, and they walk right up. Yeah, just like this. This isn't us, but this is how it was. Right up next to the fence. You're like 10 feet away from these enormous animals. And friends, I have to tell you, as I stood there, I'm a pretty big dude, and I was in awe. These are enormous, powerful creatures. They're huge, they can run 30 miles an hour. They are so strong, they can push over mature pine trees. You know, they always say, hey, if a bear is chasing you, climb a tree, don't do that. They can push the tree right <laughs> over. Their bite is so powerful, they can shatter a bowling ball. These creatures are huge. And it was just this moment standing there, like 10 feet in front of them, where I remembered again how frail and weak and vulnerable I really am. And friends, that's just the creation. That's just standing in front of something that's a creation. Imagine standing in the presence and the power of the creator. You see, Paul is saying, as Christ followers, we must not be flippant about obedience. We must not take our salvation lightly. We must stand in awe and reverence of the one who wants to work and act in us because his power and might and majesty is great. 
And Paul is saying, he will do the work. He longs to do the work in you, but you must allow him to do it. You must also work. You must partner with him. You must work at surrendering. You must work at yielding. You must work at not letting anything get in the way of what he longs to do in you. And what might you ask could get in the way? Well, Paul says, Here's a couple of things that could get in the way. <laughs> He's going to give us some ideas of what sometimes get in the way, gets in the way of God's work in us. And actually what he does here is he paints two pictures. One picture that's negative and one picture that's positive. One picture of don't do this and one picture of, yeah, lean in to this. Here's picture one. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. See, Paul paints a picture here and he says, here's a picture of what not to do. And this picture is actually a picture of the nation of Israel as they wander through the desert right after being freed from slavery in Egypt. And if you remember the story, here's how it goes. God's people are in bondage. They are slaves in Egypt. They are overworked. They are underfed. They are mistreated and abused. And then God sends Moses, a savior, a deliverer. And he comes and through some really cool miracles, delivers them into freedom. God takes them from slavery into freedom, from death into life. They were slaves, now they're free. But shortly after this moment, as they, as they walk towards their new land, their new home that's been promised to them, they begin on this journey to grumble. They've just been set free from slavery. They've just been given new life. They're moving towards a new promised land and they begin to grumble and bicker. God, we don't like the food. We don't like the weather. We don't like the walking. Why did we ever leave Egypt? God, what are you doing? Well, I'm teaching you not to complain. Well, of course we're complaining, God. We hate the food. We hate the walk. I hate the people. I've seen these woods before. God, what are you doing? I told you, we're working on the grumbling thing. Oh, grumbling, you ain't heard nothing yet. This manna is the worst. These people are bugging. Our leaders, they obviously don't have a clue. And on and on and on it goes. And the reason that this was such a bad deal was because these people were supposed to be different. They were supposed to stand out in a warped and crooked generation. You notice those words are in quotes in our passage today. It's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy about the Israelites. Israel, Israel, we're told in Genesis, was blessed to be a blessing. They were supposed to be the stars that shine in the heavens. And Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. He paints this picture to say, don't you, Philippians, don't you who have been set free in Christ fall into the same trap as the Israelites did in the wilderness. Don't you dare let grumbling and arguing rob you of your calling. Because it will. It will steal the joy from your heart. 
It will turn you into a person who forgets about all the blessings and freedoms and joys that you've been given. You know, the word for grumbling in this passage is the Greek word gogzimos. Gogzimos. It's a great word, right? Because it sounds like grumbling. Gogzimos. Here's what it means. It means murmuring or muttering behind the scenes. I don't like the way she's done. Oh, can you believe the such I just murmur and mutter and complain all the time about stuff, right? And here's the truth. Some of you do that. Some of you in this room have developed this habit of constantly being critical of people and things and situations. You're just a person who's fallen into the trap of being gogzamasi. You're just constantly gogzamasing all over the place. And the people around you know it. And right now you're sitting here and maybe you're wondering, is he talking to me? Is that me? Do I do that? And if you're wondering, after church today, let me just challenge you. Ask someone. Ask someone you know, someone you love, someone who will tell you the truth. And if they snicker when you ask them, it might just be a clue. See, friends, grumbling is just a part of our world. It's actually become quite popular in our society. Grumbling in our culture is almost celebrated. We have entire television shows that are just one big, long grumble. Let's get some people together, put them on a stage, and just let them grumble, and people will tune in by the thousands. Oh, this sounds good. You see, grumbling is fueled by this contemporary notion that complaining or venting, as we like to call it, will get that thing off your chest, off your shoulders, and then you'll feel better. Then you'll be done with the grumbling, you'll be done with the negativity, you'll feel positive and happy, and you'll be full of joy. If only I can vent. Friends, the Bible says, this is not True. The Bible says grumbling and arguing only fuels more grumbling and arguing both in you and in those around you. It does not make you feel better. It makes you feel worse. Just this past week, I was in a conversation and I was asked a question. I was in a little group of guys that I meet with sometimes and we talk about life and we get deep and vulnerable and real and I was asked a question and I just started grumbling and then that grumbling led to a little more grumbling and then I was kind of venting and then it just gogs and gogs and oh and one more gogs and and I just like went off just a big grumble gripe session and I went you know because here's how grumbling works right it's hard just to do a little when you dive into Gogzamas, it's like those chips at a Mexican restaurant before your food comes out. Like you keep saying like, I'm only going to eat three because I really want to be hungry for my burrito. But before you know it, you're like, bring another bowl and some more salsa and that guacamole. And then like your dinner comes and you're done, right? You're full, right? That's how grumbling is. It's just addictive. You can't stop. So I'm just grumbling and grumbling and Gogzamasing. And afterwards I went home and I did not feel better. I felt worse. I felt icky and gross and nasty and contaminated and like I'd contaminated my friends. So I actually had to send a text message apologizing and saying, sorry, I had such a critical spirit today. You see, you can be honest and not grumble. There's a difference. 
Paul is not saying be fake. Just be Pollyanna. Just pretend like everything's great all the time. How are you? Perfect. Life is great. But isn't your mom dying? Well, yeah, but it's wonderful, right? You get hit by a car. Rejoice in the Lord always, you know? No, you can be honest. Paul's honest. Paul is very honest. Read Paul. He tells the truth. You know, I'm in prison. They might kill me. You know, it's not my favorite thing to do. It's sort of a rough go for me. You know, you can be honest. Paul is honest. He's vulnerable. He's real. But he doesn't grumble. There's a difference. But society wants to say, you know, if you grumble, in some way that makes you authentic. That means you're an authentic person. If you, if you don't grumble all the time, then you must just be hiding something. You're not vulnerable. You're not willing to share. Like if you aren't complaining, you aren't being real. No. The Bible says be honest. Be very honest. Steve talked about arguing and wrestling with God. The Bible says embrace that. Go for that. The Bible says mourn. Lament. Grumbling and grieving are not the same thing. You can grieve, you can be in real deep hurt and pain and be honest about that pain, even with God. You can even ask God some really, really hard questions and yet still not be grumbling. Expressing genuine sorrow and despair is embraced and even celebrated in the scriptures. But grumbling and arguing from a place of having a critical spirit, of just wanting to complain, of wanting to push someone or something else down so you can feel a little bit better about yourself for a moment, that is not acceptable. And notice Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. See, Paul's intuitive. The scriptures, they know us, but it's almost as if God created us, right? He doesn't just say, don't grumble or argue. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Because he knows this about us. We have this proclivity to let ourselves off the hook. I have this sort of innate ability to create an exception for me. It's not okay for them, but for me in this moment... It's certainly all right. We have this proclivity to let ourselves off the hook. We don't let others off the hook, but we let ourselves off the hook. We don't give grace to them, but we always deserve grace. You know, I know I shouldn't grumble, but in this case, I'm sure God will understand, you know? I mean, I mean, if you had my marriage, if you had my job, if you had my boss, if you had my kids, if you had my mother-in-law, if you had my pastor or neighbor or health or story, then you'd grumble too. And the idea here is we can always find something to complain about, can't we? This world offers an unending list of things for you to be critical of and complain about. But Paul says, instead, you, followers of Jesus, those who've been saved, those who are operating from a place of having been saved and are now being saved and will be saved, you, followers of Jesus, let your words be shaped instead by the gospel. He says, as you hold firmly to the word of life. Don't grumble, don't argue. Instead, be shaped by the word of life. And in our world, in our circles, we often refer to the Bible as the word. But for Paul, when he talks about the word of life, he's talking about Jesus. 
Paul is saying here, let the story of new life in Jesus shape the words that flow from your lips. Let, the, let that be the lens through which you see the world and the lens through which you process the words that you will speak. Let the fact that you have been freed forever from the slavery of sin color your speech. So that's picture number one. That's Israel. Don't grumble and argue. Here's picture number two. That was the don't do this picture. And here's the picture of here's what we're called to lean into. This is the do do this picture. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The second picture Paul uses here is one of sacrifice. See, in the Greco-Roman pagan world, when you would go to worship one of your gods, typically what you would do is you would bring a sacrifice, an animal to offer on the altar, a bull or a goat, or if you were poor, some birds. And then you would also, along with that animal sacrifice, what you do is you would pour what was called a drink offering. Typically, it was like a cup of wine. You would pour a drink offering over your, your other sacrifice, and then you would put the whole thing on fire. And it was like this, this offering to your God. God, whoever your God was in the pagan world. And I know this, by the way, that behavior seems really strange and weird and barbaric. We're not going to get into all that today. But it's just what they did. And Paul uses this imagery to make a point. He's used sort of a Jewish image, a Jewish picture, and now he's using a a Greco-Roman picture. And here's the point he's making. He's saying, Philippians, it's like you are the animal on top of the altar. Philippians, it's like, I am the drink offering poured out over you. What he's saying is this, together we are giving our lives as the sacrifice to the one true king and creator of the universe. Your life is the sacrifice. My life is the sacrifice. The sufferings and difficulties and struggles we face are things we face for the king. And we trust that he is using even them to advance his purposes in and through us. And what he's saying here is when you approach suffering from this perspective, and suffering isn't just meaningless, when suffering or sacrifice isn't just something to avoid, but it's something God uses now, instead of grumbling or arguing or complaining, now when you face difficulties in your life, what can you do? You can celebrate, you can rejoice, because God is using it for good. You see, sacrifice, if you're a follower of Jesus, if God is your God and you believe and know that he is in control and will work all things for his glory and his good, sacrifice is not just an obligation to bemoan. Sacrificial obedience isn't just something you endure or get through. Instead, it becomes a privilege. It becomes something that you can rejoice in. And so, yes, it's hard. Yes, there are struggles and difficulties. Yes, the walk through the wilderness of this life can be tedious and treacherous and even brutal. But never forget that you walk as people who are free, as people of the cross, as people who God is working in and through. And so Paul says, so in all circumstances, in all things, look for an opportunity to be glad. You see, the opposite of grumbling is gratitude. Do you know what will kill grumbling in your life? Gratitude. 
Here's what you can't do this week. You can't go home and say, I'm going to stop grumbling. I'm going to work really hard not to grumble. That will not work. Thinking more about grumbling won't help you stop grumbling. You might for a little bit. Here's what you can do. Choose to be grateful. Choose to focus on what God has done and is doing in you. Because Paul knows that just like grumbling is contagious, gratitude is also contagious. Notice he says, I am glad, I rejoice with you all. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's saying, let's infect one another with grateful joy. Let's be the kind of people who are grateful and filled with joy and let that bleed out from me onto you and from you onto me. Let me ask you this question, friends. What are you infecting the people around you with these days? The people closest to you. The people that spend time with you. The people that live with you. Grumbling or gratefulness? When you look at your life, are you seeing it through the lens of freedom in Christ? Are you looking at your struggles and your sacrifices from the perspective that God is at work in and through them to make you the person he longs for you to be? Or are you just enduring something that's hard that you wish would go away? You see, in closing, Paul says, Walk this path of joy, and if you want to, if you want to walk this path of grateful joy, if you want to be a person whose heart is overflowing with gratefulness, not grumbling, then you're going to need something. You're going to need something very specific, and it's very simple. He says, you're going to need some friends. You can't do this by yourself. Paul closes this section by talking about two people, two people who have helped him and encouraged him to be the full of joy person that he is, even in the, even in the most dire of circumstances, even sitting on death row in a prison in Rome, Paul is filled with joy. And he says, part of the reason for that, a lot of the reason for that is that I have great friends. Let me tell you about two of them. Because of time today, I'm going to actually let you read these two sections on your own this week. One's about Timothy, one's about Epaphroditus. But I do want to say just one thing about each of them. First of all, he talks about Timothy. And the message is just very simple and very clear. You need, if you're going to follow Jesus in this world, if you want to be a person of grateful joy, not grumbling and arguing, you need deep, vulnerable, transparent, Jesus-centered friendships to to walk the path of working out your salvation in this world. You can't do it by yourself. Paul says of Timothy, he has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. You see, this is not an association for Paul. This is not, yeah, me and Timothy, we hang out sometimes. We grab coffee every now and then. No, this is, Timothy has walked the difficult roads in the wilderness right alongside of me. Timothy has shared in Paul's sufferings. He's shared in Paul's struggles. He's joined him in the battle. Do you have friends like that? Such a simple question, really. It's like the basics of the Christian life. Do you have a Timothy or do you have a Paul? Do you have someone who walks with you and leads you towards a path of gratefulness in your life. 
Then one quick thing about Epaphroditus here. Epaphroditus um, is this guy. He's actually from Philippi. The Philippians sent him to Paul to bring a gift. In the Roman world, when you were in prison, they kind of put you in there and you were chained up and you were locked up, but they didn't provide food and clothing and basic needs. You were dependent on your friends and family and people from the outside to come in and care for you. And so the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to care for Paul while he is in jail. And friends, I have to tell you, this was no small calling. This is no small task because when you serve someone who was condemned on death row in Rome, you ran the very great risk of if they, are, if they were condemned, you being condemned along with them, you being considered an accomplice. And so at the end of this section, Paul recognizes what a sacrifice, what a risk Epaphroditus has taken by coming to Rome to serve him. He says he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me because they lived a long way away. See, the Greek word for he almost died, he almost died, was actually, it's one Greek word, it's a gambling term. It's a term about gambling. Paul is doing a little play on words here because the name Epaphroditus, it's a Greek name that means favorite of Aphrodite. Favorite of Aphrodite, and Aphrodite was the goddess of gamblers, Gamblers in Paul's day would actually do this thing where, you know, before they would roll the dice or before they would make the bet, they would say out loud, Epaphroditus or favorite of the goddess, kind of for good luck. We do that same thing, right? If you go to Vegas, I mean, not you, you don't go to Vegas, but people who do that sort of thing, right? They, what do you, before you roll the dice, we have these traditions for good luck, right? What do you do? You blow on them, right? You, like, you find a pretty girl and you have her kiss them, right? Or you say, you know, Yahtzee or snake eyes or whatever. Don't look at me like I'm weird, Nancy. People do this sort of stuff. I don't do it. I don't know. I don't go to Vegas that much. I'm just saying. We do these weird things because we want, like, to win. Because we're risking it all. We're risking money, right? We want to be successful. And Epaphroditus, he, his name actually means that. Like, people would say, like, help me win. I'm risking it all. But Paul is sort of using his name as a play on words here. And what he's saying is this. Epaphroditus isn't gambling for riches or wealth or good fortune. He's not after just avoiding sacrifice and suffering. He's risking it all for the gospel. And Paul is saying, if you want to work out your salvation, if you want to live out the salvation that you've been given by Jesus, these are the kinds of friends you need and are called to be. People who will remind us what in this world is worth risking it all for. People who are going to remind us that our sacrifice for Jesus and for his kingdom is actually a good thing and it's something to be celebrated and rejoiced in, not just avoided. You see, to Epaphroditus, to Timothy, these are the kind of friends that help us work out our salvation. Are you that kind of friend? Are you the kind of friend that helps the people around you live more fully into their calling in Christ? Do you have friends that push you this way? that call you into greater risk for God's will and ways in your life. You know, one thing that strikes me about this passage is how simple it is. 
Just the simplicity of it. I mean, Paul is essentially talking about working out our salvation, which is like to say, you've been saved by the God of the universe who gave his life from you. Now, your eternity is secure. You have new life. You have eternal life. You have blessing for all eternity. And from that place, from that place, here's how you should live. And you think like it's going to be like, move to India and serve orphans. No, this is what he says. Just listen to how simple this is. In light of your salvation, do this. Don't grumble or argue. Live a, a life of sacrificial rejoicing. In other words, lean into sacrifice and rejoice in it. And oh yeah, by the way, you'll need some friends to help you along the way. The basics of working out your salvation. The basics of sanctification. Don't grumble or argue. Lean into sacrificial rejoicing. And oh yeah, you'll need some friends. Some really good, deep, vulnerable friendships to help you along the way. Just, just how simple it is. And I want to make it even simpler for you today. I want to challenge you to just look at that list and pick one. One thing this morning you think God, you think the Holy Spirit might be impressing on you, leading you into Maybe it's just that you are sitting here this morning and you're saying, man, I have been and I am really gogzamasi. I didn't even realize. I never even thought about it. It's just sort of happened over time, but I complain a lot. Maybe there's something specific that you're complaining about a lot, or maybe it's just life in general, but you're realizing that you are a grumbler. Maybe, maybe today, that's all God wants for you is just to recognize that, to confess it, to repent of it, to tell a friend and say, I do not want to be this person anymore. Maybe God is calling you to, number two, lean into a life of sacrifice instead of being like the Israelites and going, I'm following God, why are things hard? Instead of taking that perspective, take the perspective of I'm following God, where's the hard place he's leading me into? Where's the sacrificial place he's, he's asking me to go and I will go and I will go in gladness and I will rejoice even when it's tough. Or maybe God today is just convicting you again that you need a friend. And not just like an American friend, not like a Starbucks coffee friend, but like a, a Jesus friend. A friend who's all up in your business in a good Jesus-y way. And maybe today you know exactly who that is and you just need to say, hey, let's take this friendship to the next level. Or maybe you don't have a clue and you just need to say, God, bring someone, open my eyes to see someone, give me the courage to approach someone or talk to someone. Maybe he'll bring someone you're not even expecting. But maybe today you just need to lean into a friendship. I don't know which one of those it is for you today. But ask God, he'll tell you. And then here's the invitation. Here's the last thing you have to remember. We're going to do like we do every week and we're going to come to these tables and we're going to take the bread and the cup and we're going to remember through this meal and we're going to declare the fact that Jesus Christ, that God himself came to earth, that he died on the cross, that he rede redeemed us and saved us and forgave us and we'll remember this fact. We can't get there on our own. Only God can do it in us and we're going to remember that all these things don't happen through our own effort, but they happen by us stepping back, getting out of the way, and allowing God to do in us what only he can do. So come today to the table of freedom, to the meal that says you're not strong enough or smart enough or powerful enough, but your God is, and he loves you. 
Come take the bread, come take the cup and receive them and make that declaration again in your soul. I'm gonna pray and then the tables will be open. You can come grab the elements and receive them on your own whenever you're ready. Father, this morning, we give you glory and praise. We declare again that you are King and Lord. That means you're in control of us and when you're in control, Lord, you lead us into hard, dark places of sacrifice, God. And so we long to be people who walk into those places and don't grumble and don't argue and don't snicker, God, but we long to be people who rejoice and find joy in who you are and what you're doing. Unite us with others who will encourage us. Unite us with people that will push us to take bigger and greater risks for you. Help us to be those people, God. And my prayer, God, that is as a community we lean into these things, we will shine. We will shine not for our own glory, God, but for your glory. And that Jesus' name would be lifted high in this city. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.